Okay. 14. John 14 is where we are this morning. Um, okay. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Um, that initial phrase statement that is made there, let not your heart be troubled, um, has a lot behind it. And like a lot of times, we begin a chapter and immediately need to start going back a little bit for some general context. So if you turn one page before in John 13, starting at verse 18, the whole last section of John chapter 13 explains a bit of why he just said, let not your heart be troubled. <clears throat> he said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Then Jesus had said these things. He was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to G uh, Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But uh, no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that we should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. And then continuing. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the, um, to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, so now I say to you, um, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all we know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then immediately after that, I'm not even going to read the last bit, he tells Peter that he's going to deny him. So right there, there's three things that have occurred. All of them are kind of like blows to the stomach. One, one of you is going to betray me. That's shocking news to them. Secondly, there's now this little while longer bit that he says, and we're going to be, there's later on in chapter 16, it comes up again a little while longer. And what does a little while longer mean? 
because they think why is it only a little like they're expecting Jesus to be with them for the long haul. He's now saying these things to them. And then the last bit, telling Peter he's going to deny him. Those are three big things Jesus just says that immediately following that, so ending, and we'll, we'll, I'll read 13, verse 38. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Immediately following, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That is why he's immediately then saying, but let not your heart be troubled. All these things are troubling. Even so, let not your heart be troubled. The other thing about that is that if you see the, the statement that that is, it's not like an encouraging suggestion. Actually, that's a command to like, do not let your heart be troubled. Not like if you can help it, try to not like, it's a command to his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. So, and the reason, you believe in God, believe also in me. Obviously they believe in God. And I think the, the disciples do have better at this time an understanding of who Jesus is than anyone else that has interacted with Jesus, for sure. But they themselves selves still don't fully grasp yet who Christ before them really is. Obviously, they haven't experienced the resurrected Christ as we have. They don't haven't had that yet. Obviously, once that happens, things are going to change for them. But until that point, there's still a bit of confusion here. So he's saying that you believe in God, believe also in me. And that statement right there, a lot of people who say Jesus isn't God, he never said he was. There's obviously, as Christians sitting here, we know that that's not true. Jesus, a lot of times, refers to himself, whether directly or inadvertently, as being Christ. This is one of those. How can he say, if you believe in God, believe also in me? You're equating, he's equating himself in a way of being God. That's a big statement. So, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'd go to prepare a place for you. Um, and he's immediately directing their attentions from this rough, sorrowful news they just had received of those different things that he mentioned to immediately what our reward is going to be someday, to taking it off of the, these earthly situations and saying, in my father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says that to each one of us. And that is... Interesting. And he says, if it were not so, um, I would have told you. ESV says, um, if it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It's just saying, like, why would I be saying this if it's not true? It's very true. I'm, it's evident. I am going to prepare a place for you. Um, and that's so cool that to think about also that heaven, a lot of people have, there's a lot of interesting thoughts and uh, considerations about what heaven is going to be like. You know, the Bible tells us a bit. But this right here is telling us that it's personal. There's a place for each one of us that Christ is preparing for each one of us. His Father's house is heaven, but in His Father's house are many mansions. What Christ is preparing for us is so far beyond what we can comprehend um, in our minds, and it's something that should give us joy. 
And I know that people think of heaven as, yeah, it's heaven, it's great. But it's so that we can be together with God. And we're going to get into that in just a second. It says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Once again, that's what Jesus wants. He just wants close, intimate fellowship and relationship with us. That's what he's doing. He's going to prepare a place for us so that when it is our time, we can be together with God. And that's the other thing about heaven, too, is, you know, we look at heaven as this wonderful place for many different reasons. You know, no to no more tears, no more pain, no more heartache, perfection. We're going to get our rewards and whatnot. But truly, Jesus is the reward of heaven the physical in front of us with Christ reward. That is our reward. The other stuff's wonderful. But without Christ, that's all meaningless. We get to, I mean, just think about, I always I think about, you know, we're told in Colossians to set our mind on heavenly things, thinking about that from time to time. I love envisioning the fact that when I draw my last breath, realizing that you're actually going to see Jesus and get to touch Jesus and get to hug Christ is way more exciting to me than anything else that we see that might be in heaven with the other sights that we might see and the other rewards we might have given to us. He wants fellowship with us. And if we see that in the future, if we see in heaven, that God is preparing a place so that he can come and receive us and that we can be together someday, together with him, then he also wants that now. It's not something we get then. It, it will be perfect then, but right now we should be seeking that fellowship that he wants with us in our day-to-day life. And we do that through seeking him, you know, reading his word, praying, spending time with the Lord in fellowship. That's how we have that fellowship that will be then achieved perfectly in heaven. And and then verse 4, he says, And where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, Obviously, one of the better-known sections of Scripture to believers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's really interesting, um, you know, listening to Joe Foch talking about this, the fact that Jesus just said, and where I go, you know, and you know the way, referring to himself. Yet, Thomas still asks the question that Jesus just said he they know. And it's almost as if that question was posed, yes, for the disciples to have better understanding, but for us. Because if he wouldn't, essentially, if there was no question asked, then we wouldn't then have the response of, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that is a key verse to use in a lot of scenarios talking to people. So praise God that he sometimes had his disciples ask questions that maybe looking back on it, you're like, wow. It's an inch that, you know, it seems like a silly question, maybe, or how do you not know? Jesus just said you know, but but Thomas still asks, Lord, we do not know where you're going, 
how can we know the way? And that's the thing, not, not who, what is the way or what, how can we know the way? And he's saying, you already know the way. I'm with you right now. He calls himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, it's interesting that we also use this, uh, these verses a lot. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We say that verse a lot, but there's a lot of weight behind that too. Um, Jesus is constantly alluding to himself as being part of the triune God. So many people in this day don't get that. We were, what was it last week, two weeks ago now? Um, me, Oliver, Zach, and two other guys did some evangelism at Knowlton Park during um, the Pride Festival. Um, so many people we ended up talking to that had a, I mean, I don't even know saying had a knowledge. I mean, had a brief sort of kind of knowledge about something of the Bible, but because they had even that small bit of knowledge thought that it made them qualified to know everything of the Bible. And they just say stuff about like who Jesus was or what he, who he wasn't that the Bible claims he is. And saying those types of things, like Jesus, they, they say it so matter-of-fact, Jesus never said he was God. Like, they know for a fact that happens, and you take them through the several places, like, I am, <laughs> I am the way, like, all these things, and they're like, yeah, it's... And then they go to, well, man, that's written by man, it's altered. So you went from, the Bible doesn't say that, to, okay, well, now it does say that, but it doesn't matter anyways, because it was written by people. And back then, he said these statements all the time, and this is obviously why he ultimately was killed, because... It wasn't just that he was doing good stuff and making the Pharisees look bad. It was ultimately the things he was saying to the Jewish law at the time was blasphemous. He was equating himself to being God. Again, when he heals the guy who was let down through the roof, he doesn't say, rise, take up your bed and walk first. He says, your sins are forgiven you, which then the Pharisees are like, who is this person who can forgive sins? If he would have just healed the man and said, take up your bed and walk, okay, well, that's a miracle and interesting. The Pharisees would now have no reason to be that mad because, well, it's a miracle. But he first says, your sins are forgiven you. And that is incredible. That, that alone is a statement of saying that he is God. And the Pharisees knew that. And that's why people who today who claim that Jesus never said that, I'm like, you don't understand at all what was being said then. And... You know, David Guzik here about that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, says, you know, if, if I'm wondering, if I'm wondering about um, and I don't know where I'm going, we can know that Jesus is the way. If I'm confused and I don't know what to think, Jesus is the truth. I'm dead inside and I don't know if I can go on. Jesus is the life. Um, and that's, there's so much, I mean, we might not be in all of those circumstances, but we might find ourselves in one with one of those questions from time to time of, you know, maybe maybe there's something in life right now that is confusing or or you're just wandering around. You don't have a direction. You don't have a knowledge of where you're going. Maybe you're the other thing. I'm dead inside. I don't know if I can go on. There's, there's a lot of people dealing with different circumstances like this in their life. And if we can think of that, you know, if you're lost, if you're not, if you're a Christian and you feel like, I don't know what the Lord wants, I don't know where I'm, I'm just feel like I'm floundering here. Okay, well, Jesus is the way. Know that and just follow him. 
he will reveal in time what his plan is for you. Maybe his plan right now is for you to wait and to wait and wait more. And then he'll reveal himself to you. In this day and age, there's a lot of Christians that are confused. There's so many people. There are, there are a lot of people who are joining the faith, praise God, in amongst all of this nonsense in our world. But there are simultaneously a lot of Christians who are a part of Christendom in some way or another that are now departing. And, you know, for those people that are confused, Jesus is the truth. There's so much false truth out there, which is obviously not truth at all. But, man, relativism is so prevalent in our culture. The whole, you know, if it's true to you, it's true. If it's true for me, our, our truths might be different. I know my truth type of thing. It's so nonsensical. And, you know, you follow that rabbit trail of theirs all the way down to the point where you can, you, it's very easy to, you know, destroy that logic. Because, you know, if you look at somebody who is clearly like everyone agrees what they're doing is evil, but to them, what they're doing is right. I mean, you know, the ultimate argument is, you know, Hitler, the Nazis. Well, they were believed with all their heart that they, the Jews weren't people. They were not human beings, and they needed to be exterminated to preserve culture in that part of the world. Okay, to them, that was 100% truth. Was that their truth, and it's right for them? No, we know that that is across the board wrong. They were evil. Okay, well, if we can say that, then if you go to something that maybe seems lesser evil, like whatever your sin is, but you're clinging to it, well, it's fine for me. No, there's a moral truth, and Jesus is that truth. We can't just... Truth doesn't bend back and forth. It's a very rigid, very straight line. And the world doesn't like that. And when we might feel confused in our own life, spiritually or, or other, Jesus is the truth. And then also, you know, if you're ever, you know, having a hard time in life in general, you can't feel like it can't go on. Jesus is the life. When you feel like, and, that, and honestly, some when people get to that place, it, it usually is because there's a bit of you've taken your focus off of maybe Christ, and you're living on your own strength. If you have Christ in you, Christ will pull you through those circumstances where you don't think you can go on. I remember, um, man, back in 2012, I was in Bible college in Hungary, and one of the pastors just had a whole entire sermon. It was a pastor's conference, and his whole sermon was for pastors who feel burnt out. Um, and his whole message was about the burning bush and how it wasn't the fact that the bush was on fire that caused Moses to go. It was the fact that the bush was on fire and not being consumed by the fire. It was just continuously burning. Nothing was happening to the, the wood. So he pursued and was like, wow, this is interesting. It's not burning out. Let me go see what this is. And the fire on that bush was the fire of God. And that fire did not consume the bush. It was, it was burned eternally. And that's the fire we need. If we have the, the proper Holy Spirit of God inside of us, then that burnt out feeling we're going to feel isn't going to be there because if we're living with that passion of God's Holy Spirit moving us, that is the strength we need to, to continue, carry on. But when you, when you take your focus off of that and you start just doing something of your own strength, your own volition, yeah, you're going to burn out. You're going to... Whether that's in a job or in life in general, you just get depressed. And well, like, there's a lot of Christians. I mean, so many missionary biographies of really strong, amazing missionaries that did a lot of amazing work for the Lord. 
so many of them have sections in books of theirs that they've written or were written about them where they had months or years of like severe depression. A lot of people go through that. And most of them come back to the point of, I started focusing on myself. And in that time of not properly aligning my focus with Christ, I therefore got into this pit of feeling hopeless. Once again, if you're in that position, we remember that Jesus is the life. He's our life. And if we've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And if we have Christ truly living in us, and we're truly submitted to what he wants us to be doing, then he will carry us through when we maybe feel like we can't keep going. He will, he will help us to persevere. Moving on, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have you been with me so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? One more time, where that's clearly Jesus referring to himself as God. Um, and, and it also shows us again that the disciples had a good grasp of who Jesus was. Again, better than probably anybody living at that time. But they still were hazy in some areas, because that was news to them. Show us the Father. And he said, you've been with me this long. If you have seen me, you have indeed seen the Father. And I'm sure we don't necessarily see immediately their reaction there, but you, you can imagine that was a pretty shocking statement to hear. That maybe that's finally sitting in to their hearts and their minds of understanding, maybe even like fully once Jesus is resurrected, once they're seeing his resurrected self, then they're definitely like, all right, but even that statement there, probably in all of or some of their hearts, was like, "Man, is this like this is? It's becoming more tangible than this is actually God sitting in front of me right now." And thankfully, we understand that because we have this book and we can know that because we read it and understand its truths. But the disciples got to literally live with and hang out with Jesus, who in turn is that perfect representation on earth of the Father. So yes, seeing me, Jesus saying that, you have seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and does the works. Now Jesus has said statements like that before, over in, um, real quick, John 5, verse um, 19. He says, um, and Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on, of himself, um, but what he, he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does like in like manner. Also in 8.28, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Jesus and the Father are one. He's not doing anything of himself. And sometimes, see, I've had people in conversation with evangelists and whatnot who go with, okay, see, they're separate. If he's of the Father, then it would, he would be able 
to like he's doing what the father wants him to do. So he's clearly God's son. Like he's created. He's doing what God is beckoning him. No, no. he and his father are one. So he is doing exactly what the father would be doing if the father was on earth, which he is in Christ. So he is exactly doing what the father taught him to do because he is the father. And that, and that's where you know the Trinity is one of those things that you know the God. They're they're all separate but equal. You understand, you know the tr the Trinity. It's a difficult thing to understand. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all acting separately yet one. And the, you know you talk with Mormons and there you see different God. No, it's it's the same. They are it's one God, three parts. Our human infinite or finite minds can't comprehend it. So it is difficult. It's a difficult thing. I mean, ask any. You can ask a bunch of different people of theology to, you know, try to represent the Trinity in like a drawing form or whatnot. And there's a lot of people who've tried to like articulate who this, who the Trinity, what the Trinity would look like in drawing. You get the Trinity symbols, like Trinity Church had like that swiggly triangle-looking thing, which all connects back to the center, but it's all connected. So, you know, there's a lot of trying to like piece together who Jesus is, but it. it it's not the point. He's telling us here. It doesn't matter what we try to think of in our human minds. Jesus is telling us here that he is the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And honestly, that is enough because the next here in 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Oh, another way of saying that, like if, if you're if you are struggling, he's almost saying to believe what I'm saying to you right now with that I am the Father in, in the Father and the Father in me. If nothing else, look at the things that I've done now. And that's the evidence. There is the evidence that he is who he says he is through the works that he was doing on earth, the 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 example he was giving of who what they should be like, and also again all the miracles he was doing. I mean, no one else was doing that stuff. Twelve. Most assuredly, I say to you. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This section of scripture right here is really, really, really abused. And I think you can probably already understand why. Um, and I'll get to the last bit why it's more that way. But firstly, um, most assuredly I say to you, um, he who believes in me, the works that I will um, that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. People are like, okay, so I can do like greater things than Jesus. It's not really is what that's saying. Greater as it's not greater as in necessarily like wonder, but possibly greater in like effect. And what I mean by that is look at Pentecost. 3,000 people came to Christ on that day. That many people never came to Jesus while Jesus was on earth. That once Jesus had left, the disciples went out and were doing, yes, in terms of the people it reached, yeah, greater things than Jesus did. Now, no, the greatest thing ever was Jesus died on the cross. Nothing can top that. And that's not what's being spoken of here. People are like, oh, so we can do greater miracles? No. And this is, that's not what that's saying. It's saying that 
the effect of what we're doing in Christ's name will be reached in a possibly in a greater way than the Lord did. And that's because the Lord's working in us. So it's still basically the Lord doing it. But <laughs> it's because he's in us we can do greater things. And that next bit, this is what is the, uh, the abused portion. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And people immediately then think, okay, well, anything. You should be able to ask. It says anything. You should be able to ask anything. And that's, it is what that's saying, but not. Because it says, in my name. And people don't understand what that means. It's tagged on the end of prayers, you know, Jesus' name, amen. That is a just the statement, in Jesus' name, amen. We've been given the authority of Jesus to use that because he has the authority from God the Father. You're invoking the authority of the creator of the universe on your prayers, on the things we're asking for. And there's two, like, there's two meanings behind that, in Jesus' name, or asking something in my name. And the two that were given, once again, were articulated great simply by David Guzik of the first is it's simply like a blank check where the name given is who's giving you the ability to do what you're doing. It's not you can't, and, and you can't just get anything. It's what the person who gave you the authority with that money is allowing you to get. Like you can't just go blow it on anything if, they, if that's not what they would do. Also, there's the limit of, once again, if... It's not of the, in the character of the person you're using authority to do something. It's also not going to be of effect, you know, anything. I'm going to go, you know, Mercedes. Okay, is that, in, is that in the character of Jesus Christ? No. So when it says you can ask anything of me in my name, that's kind of automatically saying pretty evidently according to what the Lord would be doing. He's not, it's not a self-seeking statement here. This is not self-seeking. It's not ask anything in my name. It's in Jesus' name. In his name, he's going to, yeah, allow us to do some things we ask for because it's going to line up with his name that we're invoking to do that. Some things are going to be selfish and absolutely not going to be given to us because it's not asked properly according to his name. So many people ask for things. Why wouldn't God give me that? I'm praying, you know. Ask anything in my name. That's, it's not what that's saying. It's taken out of context very badly. So, moving on. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. If you love me, keep my commandments or obey my commandments, other, other translations say. There's so much just in that statement that... I mean, you can argue over doctrine with, with in theology with just that statement. Um, you know, to be saved, to receive Christ is, you know, to believe in Christ, repent of your sins, and again, repent, turn around, go the other way. That is, 
That is our salvation. Believe on in Christ and the sacrifice he gave and repent. And that is salvation, simply. But if you love me, keep my commandments. If you've repented, then the true love shown to Christ and those around us will be to keep his commandments. And if we fail to keep the commandments of the Lord, then you are not ex- exhibiting love for Christ. Therefore, if we don't show love for Christ, do we love Christ? Therefore, are we saved? So this is like the evidence of your salvation is, is keeping the commandments of Christ. And his biggest commandments are love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obviously, there's more that he's told people to do in, in the New Testament, but that's not the point. We need to make sure, because the thing is, the, the lack of keeping a commandment or of keeping the commandments or of, of righteous living according to Christ inadvertently then is now sinful behavior. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people in the church, a lot of Christians, I'll say, definitely their faith is more along the lines of emotional. It's an emotional relationship they have with Christ. And they, there is a, there's a, a sincerity there, but a lot of it is still, it goes back to, it's emotional. You, you, they talk about it and they get passionate about it and they maybe even cry or whatever about their experiences. But when you boil it down and you sift through their life, there's a lot of commandments there that they're not like, because their love for God is enough. So they still can do these other things in their mind because I love God. But yeah, I do these other things, but I love God. And they don't question that they love God, but that is, if you're not obeying his commandments and you're doing things that he said not to do, well, now you're not obeying his commandments, therefore you don't love God. A lot of people, their, their love for God is simply with their mouth and maybe their heart, but it's not in evidence and in, in action and what the, how they're actually living their life. Um, I think, I mean, I've been guilty of that too in times where I, you know, maybe I'm saying I'm loving the Lord more than I'm really showing him that I am. And that's important to make sure that we're not just saying we love God without actually following through with that. Um, yeah. 19, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am the Father, and you in, um, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And who lo- he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Um, again, going back to the commandments, it's brought up once again there. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So clearly, if you are not that person, you do not love Jesus and God in according to him. You might feel like you do, but you don't truly. Um, and that's another thing that's unfortunately like infiltrated its way into Christianity is like this not offending people thing, because that is more loving, because you're not offending people. And it was really hard when we were when we were talking to people at that Pride Fest. I mean, two two of the people that were with us hadn't done it before, had never done that sort of like just right in people's face evangelism before, and they were like, "Man, this is interesting." And I was like, "Yeah," and it's. 
of all the days to start, this is probably one of the harder times because when you're in a normal park, just talking to like on a normal day, but you're going on a day that's specifically devoted for immorality. Then when you're going to talk to these people about where they're wrong, yeah, you're, we're not going to have a lot of people happy with us. I mean, he did have some unhappy people. Um, and the last person that me and one of the other guys spoke to, like he puts together his own pride events in other parts of the state and I think other, other states. Um, and yeah, and it, it boiled down to it. I was really trying to be gentle with, with what I was saying to this guy. Basically what we did, um, we were talking to people just going up and starting conversations. And then Oliver and I um, ended up resorting to a method that we used up at University of Maine, which is basically you write a question on like a whiteboard and put it somewhere that if people walking by want to engage with you, then they can be like, yeah, I'll answer your question. It's a little less like I'm not going to people, they're coming to us. So it's like, okay, you want to, you've stopped. You're willing to talk, let's talk. And our question was simple this time, it was just, does God exist? And then you, there's like three boxes of like a yes, um, no, and maybe, and people could just like mark where they thought in their head. And people who talked, we'd ask them why they believe what they believe and whatnot. But the, the last person, that, I mean, the, the place was getting ready to pack up and leave. And one of the last guys that walked by, um, you know, walked up very, you know, insistent, a little smuggish, and, you know, no. Oh, interesting. Why? And he just starts going off onto these, this whole thing, and we, were, we had these long conversations. And it, it boiled down to, he's like, do you think, um, he's like, do you think that I'm, I'm sinning. I was like, you brought it up. <laughs> I was trying to go around, like, just be gentle with you. I was like, yeah, yes. I was like, and I don't think it because I think it. I think it because it says it here. And I believe this book with all my heart. And because I believe this book with all my heart, I have to then, yes, say that it is because I believe this. And he got real mad. How dare you? I was like, yeah, well, it's not me. <laughs> I'm just relaying the information. Um, and then he, he stayed. He stayed and kept talking to us. But there were a couple times where that came up. And he was just real not happy about it. And he said, like, how is this loving? Because we said to him a couple times, like, man, I love you. Like, I, I have nothing against you. I'm, I'm just as much a sinner as you are. He's like, okay, well, why don't you? Why aren't you going to hell? I said, because I repent daily. I realize that I'm a messed up person. And I'm trying to do something about it. Where you're saying what you're doing that is messed up is fine. You say, well, how is it messed up? It's like, because God says so. I don't have an answer for you other than God says so. I don't care, but God says so, so I care. That's why. And he just couldn't get around that. And I was like, dude, I don't know what to tell you, but it's sin. <laughs> yeah, it's sin. It's just sin. It's, I, it's not me trying to offend you. I don't have anything against you. It's just I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> We're both sinners. But I'm telling you, there's a guy right there putting his hand down. His name's Jesus. You should grab his hand and we can... Get out of here together. And he just wouldn't see that what he was doing was wrong. But in his eyes, and a lot of people that walk by, some people who claim to be Christians are like, this isn't loving. You know, just affirming what they're doing in their mind is loving. That is not love. And that's the same thing here. Like sometimes we think that being gentle to a point of not calling people out is love because that's what our culture says in the church. Oh man, there's so many churches that are so into that now. Like, do not say anything at all that would a little bit convict people or call people out. Not at all. Like, we got to be loving. That's not loving. And that's, you know, the guy I was with, you know, 
taught to say is like if if we do believe this with all of our hearts like if if we truly believe this message is without a doubt true and we do because of this book think that through the actions of what you're doing in your lifestyle are wrong and we think that you are going to hell wouldn't it be really messed up for us to not tell you if it is actually true like we should tell you because we believe it if we hit it to ourselves, that in a way is actually not loving because we're not telling you he's like i get that logic but it's still not loving I was like, all right, man, I don't know what else to say. I don't think we're going to get anywhere. But, yeah, the world has this messed up view of love of just let you let me do what I want to do. That is loving. Not loving. That is not at all loving. Um, and I feel like the world is seeing that. You know, there was a generation of kids that have been raised, and a lot of them were raised to, yeah, you can do what you want to do. And this is the world we have. So back when rules were more across the board adhered to in homes, you had a society of people that adhered to rules better. And you it's just it's simple. If you let people do whatever they want, that's not love. That is chaos. And Jesus and God knows that. And that's why we have this book to tell us what is wrong, because we wouldn't know any better any, if we didn't have it. So, yeah, you go out and talk to people. People are going to get mad at you. I mean, that's just how it is. You have to accept it. And that's the thing. I mean, evangelism is so it's awkward. It's an awkward thing. You know, we've, we're going to be going down to Bar Harbor, I think, next week or something, um, and talking to people. And, yeah, it's it's not easy. I mean, I I was not, like, getting shot at overseas, but even in basic training, bullets flying over your head when you're doing your low crawl. It's a little nerving having real bullets going over your head. I still think it's a more adrenaline pumping to, like, approach someone for the first time and talk to them. Super awkward. It is. Some guy sitting in a park minding his own business, and I'm like, Hey, how's it going? Want <laughs> to talk about something? And he's like, sure. And it's it's odd. It's a very odd thing. I've been approached by people who are doing evangelism, and it's odd for me. I agree with them, and it's just odd because you're a stranger. I don't know you. Why are you talking to me? It's weird. And, you know, there's two different approaches. You can just go up and start casually talking about whatever to get in there. Or you can just go right for him and be like, you want to talk about Jesus? <laughs> Which... Both can work. Both, I mean, I've had, because I've had, I was down in Peru. We did evangelism like every week down in Peru in the little center where I was. And, you know, I would talk to people. I, my approach down there was soccer. They all like soccer. And I'd be like, hey, do you, what do you like for soccer or whatever? We'd have this long conversation about something. And then I'd find like something they'd say that I was like, oh, that could segue into what I'm trying to talk about. But so many times I'd do that that you'd build like a little friendship for talking with whatever they wanted to talk about for however long. And then you'd finally get to like Christianity or Jesus and they'd still be like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And they leave. I'm like, well, I just wasted an hour of my night talking to some guy about soccer that I don't care about. And he still didn't want to talk to me. So I guess I could have just gone up and said, Hey, you want to talk about Jesus? And he was still would have done the same thing. And I would have saved myself an hour. So I don't know, but I know that it's important that we should be, uh, we need to talk to people. There is a world out there that's ready. Even the people, there were some people who were interested the other week. I mean, not initially. <laughs> people put up that front, that guard initially because, you know, who wants to talk to a stranger? But once you break down the wall a little bit, you talk a little bit, they, some people were interested. They were like, man, I never, you know, I didn't know this side of Christianity. And there's a lot of people in our culture right here that do not understand at all what we believe in any way. They know there's some guy named Jesus who is some random guy in the desert who built stuff and who died. And we have a book called the Bible that teaches about him. That's not that's pretty much the extent of a lot of their knowledge. 
some of them don't even know that Jesus either was real or died. Like they, some people don't know stuff, and it's like, man, you live in America, you got whatever. Cool. I'll teach. I'll, I'll talk to you. So it's crazy. Um, like there's parts of America that are like becoming almost unreached again, in in the way that like it's been so out of our culture for so long. Europe's that way. I mean, Europe was once the you know the hub of Christianity in the world, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago. To now, there's there's been atheism permeating in Western Europe for so long now that the younger generations now like have no idea about anything about God at all. It's crazy. You talk to people like, man, I feel like I'm in the Middle East. Like you guys don't know nothing about this. The world needs people to be talking outside of the church walls about Jesus to people, unashamed with boldness. It's hard, but we got to do it. Moving on. Obeying his commandments. And then it says, anyways, 21, and he, uh, he who has my commandments keeps them. It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And that's also what we want right there, too. I don't know if anybody here has ever had that, but I'm sure in a lot of your lives you've had a manifestation of the Lord where you can't deny it. Like, you know that you've had an encounter with Christ. Um, maybe you haven't personally seen him, but that's not necessarily what manifest means. It could be, you know, strong speaking to you in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit. And that's the other thing too, you know, when people, you know, why do you believe what you believe? It's like, because I can't not believe it. I can't not. It's too tangible to me because Christ has manifested himself to me in various ways throughout my life that I just can't say didn't happen. I know what, I mean, firstly, the word of God is sufficient. I trust this with all my heart. But then my own personal experiences I've had with the Lord in those manifestations I've had. Yeah, it's something that I can't just be like, yeah, whatever. No, it can't. 22, Judas, not Iscariot. So Judas here, this, the not Iscariot, his other name is Thaddeus. That's the other disciple that we're talking about here. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and... Um, not to the world. That's perfect. I've had the Lord manifested to me. Definitely not the world. He does it. And that's the question they're asking. Because in their mind, they're seeing it physical. Like, you're here. Everybody can see you. How can this happen? And this is obviously talking about the spiritual manifestation of Christ to us. So they're not getting that. <clears throat> 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And that's simply it. If you keep his words, you keep his commandments, the Lord's going to do this. If you don't, you're not. And that's why, and there's other people that I know of in the church. I have friends that are this way, that claim Christianity and sort of participate in this, but they don't have that. Like they're like, but I want, I want the Lord to manifest. I just don't have it. Well, there's, I know for a fact, some of those people I'm talking about in my own life are not following the commandments of God. Okay, well, if you're not, you we you see here that you're okay. Well, you're not going to get that. You can call yourself a Christian all you want, do what you want, come to church all you want. But if you're not abiding in Him and following His commandments and keeping His word, that's not in the cards for you. You need to submit properly before the Lord. Humble yourself. And obey his commandments. Obviously, we're going to fail because nobody's going to do that 100%. But it's it's the more like 
that's your intention. Some people don't even have the intention of obeying his commandments because they're doing something they know they probably shouldn't be, but they still do it. That is a blatant disregard of commandments. But obviously you're going to stumble. But if your general goal in life is trying to stay righteous, trying to keep pure, abiding Christ and allow him to lead us through our life, yeah, that you're, you're keeping his commandments. All right, 25. I think, yeah, 25. Um, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Once again, he's going back to saying what he said in the beginning. Let not your heart be troubled, let it not be afraid. And he's telling him about this Holy Spirit that's coming. And we know what happens, you know, you read and what happens in the first part of Acts. You know, they're in the room and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And the Holy Spirit is just as awesome as Jesus. You know, he's one of the part of the Trinity. Um, and that's what we have helping us today is the Spirit. We don't have Christ physically with us, but we do have God the Spirit with us. Um, and he is just as just as effective as Jesus Christ is. He's still God the Spirit, and that's what we have, the helper. Um, and it is the Spirit that's, you know, we have the Spirit of Christ living within us. That's, that is, it's all the same thing, God. And... Um, and that's honestly, it should be, our, our, it says he's our comforter, like our helper. And it says a comforter. The Holy Spirit should be a comfort to us. Because again, in those times where maybe you're lost, you don't know what you're doing, whatever. If we can just remember that if we've placed our trust in the Lord, then the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is what's living inside of us right now. And that, if we believe, truly believe in that power that happened 2000 something years ago, then that should make us super excited that that is the exact same spirit that's living in my in my life, in your life. And you don't have to worry about anything if the spirit of God is living inside of you. Remember who is the way, the truth, and the life. If we remember that and know that now that is living inside of us, just live your life pursuing Jesus and all these all the other stuff will be taken care of. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We know that. And in 27, again, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. And that's, it's so crazy. God God gives, everything God does is opposite from the world. Because there are things that the world tries to comfort us with. I mean, I sometimes seek things of the world to find comfort. I don't know. Sometimes if I'm feeling flustered or you know, having a rough day or whatever, I'll sometimes turn to, like, I'll watch a show or I'll watch something that, like, think it's going to calm me down and I won't just go read the word because I know that that's probably definitely 100% going to be better. But I'm just going to watch the show and allow that to come for me. That's the thing. The world gives us peace in a way that, you know, it's not. It's just a distraction. You're now focusing on some other thing in the world that's making you forget about maybe your other thing that's causing you to worry. But it's not a remedy. It's not even a band-aid. It's just distraction. And we need to remember that the peace that God gives us, it's not like the world. He doesn't give like the world. Um, 
And that's a comfort. I don't want him to get, I don't want, I love that the Lord is nothing like our world. Our world is crazy. Our world is so, every day something happens and I'm like, man, you can never predict how much more crazy this world is going to get. I mean, they know. Yeah. And then again, again, that last statement there um, that he says, um, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my thought, Father is greater than I. Not to them. This is all like such a probably really difficult conversation to be hearing from the Lord. Jesus has been their life for three years. I mean, they they gave up a lot. They did. Some of them gave up a lot to follow Jesus. I mean, every one of them. But, I mean, in particular, I mean, Peter's a big one. Peter, Andrew, James, John, fishermen. It's, working conditions are, are not even close to the same as how they used to be. Um, but, like, those men who used to work doing fishing in the Sea of Galilee <clears throat> probably didn't live very wonderfully, probably lived pretty lowly, didn't have a lot anyways, yet all of them, when called, dropped their nets and left. Um, Matthew. Matthew gave up a lot. Um, you know, in, in different ways. I mean, Matthew had an interesting situation. You know, Matthew, the tax collector, very much despised by his fellow Jews for what he was doing. You know, tax collectors um, were employed by Rome to collect taxes of the local people, and you could pocket a bit of the tax you brought in. If you, you know, if Rome is requiring this amount for taxes, well, you can put the tax amount you need to receive at this and give Rome what they need, and then whatever is left over, you get to keep. So you're basically ripping people off that are your own people. And pretty much any society that Rome took over, those people hated Rome, because who wants to be occupied by anyone? So you're now working for the occupiers and taking our money to work for them. Yeah, people in those that society did not like tax collectors at all. And obviously we see that. Jesus calls the tax collectors and they, the disciples have a problem with that. But all that being said, Matthew still was making a lot of money. He was probably very wealthy as being a tax collector. <clears throat> and he gave all that up immediately, followed Jesus. And again, so I'm saying they did this for three years. Now all of a sudden Jesus is saying he's going away. He's going to come back. And yeah, they're not necessarily focusing on that comeback part. They're not focusing on that the positive of what they're saying. You should be rejoicing. They're, they're looking at like, yeah, this guy I've been following for three years. You're just leaving? Yeah, their hearts are a little, you know, troubled, as it says. And he's saying, let not your hearts be troubled. But he says there, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. And that's so hard. But yeah, if we love Jesus, the idea of the Son and the Father being together, ruling together, Father, Son, seated at the right hand of the Father, that is a blessing. I'm so grateful that we have our Heavenly Father seated up there watching over us. Um, and then it says in 29, And now I have told you, um, before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. That, this is, again, this is all really big, huge, 
like eternal spiritual language he's dropping on them right now. The ruler of this world. Who's that? Because in their mind, Jesus, Christ, ruler of this world. But you're now telling me that there's a ruler of this world coming and you have, he has nothing to do with you? Yeah, there's a lot of things here that are being dropped on them that is crazy. Again, we were now living in it 2,000 years later. We have this book. We get, we understand more than they did because we have this, what's called the more sure word. But <clears throat> this is really heavy things they're hearing right now. And obviously the ruler he's talking about, Satan. Satan rules this world. Obviously Christ has control over everything. God the Father has control over everything, but he has allowed the enemy to, yeah, rule this world. And you can look out the window and see clearly that this world is clearly submitting to the whims and desires of Satan. <clears throat> Obviously we know how it ends, so it's still a good thing because Satan will lose in the end. But right now he's allowing Satan to run around and do his thing. It says, but... 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Um, he, uh, I try to put myself in the shoes of the disciples. It's really easy to look back through Scripture at things that the Israelites did in the Old Testament, at things that the disciples did with Jesus and like a lot of times things they do that seem foolish as the readers, it's sometimes easy to look and be like, it's so dumb. Why would they have done that? Like I would have done it differently, whatever. And it's so, it's such a mirror to our own life of how we're literally the exact same. We make the exact same mistakes on a daily basis. So when we look and think Israel is a bunch of idiots or that Paul, Peter for, you know, not so Lord and, you know, get behind me, Satan. You look at Satan or Peter, and you're like, "Man, what is what an idiot!" And just open, just shut your mouth. But a lot, we all, a lot of us jump and say stuff and do stuff, but well before we should. We need to think. We act just like the people, the men, the humans in this Bible, because we're the same. We're not better. We need to understand that what these disciples are hearing right now is crazy. <laughs> um, I try to put myself in their shoes. But, and then be grateful that we know we're on the other side of what happened. We understand what has occurred since um, Christ's death. We know Christ died. We know he rose from the dead. They had no idea any of that was happening. And then you look, you know, Peter saw Jesus in the Mount, uh, the, um, Mount of Transfiguration. You know, he, he was there. He witnessed that glorious moment. Yet he still, how, how would you deny Jesus? Like, it's really interesting to me. But I, again, I, in my own way, have seen Christ manifested in my life. And there's been other moments since those moments that at times I maybe have denied Christ in a way I shouldn't have. I've done the same thing. How could Israel look and literally walk through, see parted in two and walk through that? And then in the same generation of people who witnessed that, doubt God and turn towards false gods. Like, how? what? We do the same thing. And maybe you think, like, well, if I saw the ocean split in two, I wouldn't doubt ever again. It's not true. Signs and wonders aren't the answer. It's Jesus. You don't understand we're no different. Um, I'm going to move on a little bit and go into a bit of uh, 15. 
And continuing on in this section, so before I continue, this whole section of scripture right here, like 12 through 17, 18, like this whole section of John is probably my favorite section of scripture that exists in the whole Bible. Obviously, I love the entire word of God, but there's that covers pretty much one like scene. It covers a very short amount of time. It's not like the rest of the Gospels are covering the life of Christ. These sections of these chapters here are covering a very short amount of time in crazy detail. Um, I remember was in Bible college, we you know going through this section of John and realizing that if like if the entirety of Jesus' um, life was covered with this much detail, like the amount of literature that'll be written is insane. Um, there's so much detail here. We see so much of Jesus. I mean, look at all the red words in your Bible. It's so much Jesus being spoken here. Directed to the disciples, which can then be attributed to us as well as reading it now. Things that Jesus is speaking to the disciples that can apply directly to us. John 17, I'm not going to get into that at all today, but John 17, I mean, that's Jesus' prayer. We literally get to have a whole chapter listening to Jesus' like pure heart prayer for his disciples and also a section of that prayer for future believers. <clears throat> Nothing. I Honestly, John 17 is my favorite chapter of the Bible. I love getting to see that portion of Jesus. It's amazing getting to, to hear God, the Son, praying to God the Father for who he loves. It's beautiful. And this section of Scripture here, John 15, is it's all part of the same conversation he's having with these guys. It's amazing. John, uh, John 15, 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the, in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. <clears throat> this imagery here, I think, is awesome. Um, it's so easy to understand what he's talking about, even all these years later, because we still garden. People in this day and age, we still do this. We still have tangible access to exactly what he's talking about, of a plant that, you know, the plant itself might be healthy, but there's a branch sticking off that isn't. So, yeah, it, you remove it. There's other branches that are healthy, but the very ends of them need to be pruned so that it can grow better. It, this imagery is so vivid and simple to get. And then you just immediately take that and be like, okay, well, that is us with God. And I just love the simple imagery here and the truth behind it. So, Jesus is the vine. He is the the main stock the uh, going up and sticking off of him are the the branches. And the only way for those branches to remain healthy, it says, abide in, verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Obviously, if you cut off a branch from the main vine, it's going to die. It can't do anything on its own. It can only be of any use if it's attached to the main vine. And it has to have healthy access, a connection with the vine too. Um, it needs to be, we will bear fruit. And that's, you know, another common thing. You know, you can't 
you can't judge Christians. Like you, you shouldn't judge. Like you can't look at Christian. You know, you shouldn't be able to say to someone you're not a Christian. And there's truth to that, but also the Bible says you will know them by their fruit. Jesus walking by the fig tree that was bearing no fruit and said that burn that tree. That tree should be burnt, burned down. It's just destroyed. Fruit is evident. You could look at a Christian's life that you know and evidently say fruit in that life. I see it. You can see the fruit flowing out of that person's life. Um, some fruit may be smaller. You know, maybe you walk by a tree that's like a berry and you might have to look a little closer, but it's still producing fruit. Sometimes it's an apple tree and it's like evident, boom, big fruit, clear to see. But you'll also see a tree that's not bearing fruit and that's also very evident because it's not just not bearing fruit, but it looks unhealthy. And that's the same, it's the same imagery with, with Christianity. You can look at someone and tell that they're not doing hot spiritually. You know, you, you examine their life for five minutes and you're like, man, there could be fruit growing here and there's not. Now, sometimes that requires, like it says here, being pruned. Um, every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So, you might need pruning in your life. Maybe you, you have you have produced fruit, but maybe you're st kind of at a stagnant place. That doesn't mean your branch is faulty. It just means that you maybe need that pruning to, okay, well, now you need to continue. Now, what is the pruning? Um, most Anybody here who's been pruned understands it's usually a little bit painful. God usually puts you through something, is doing something in your life that is a little painful, but you're probably going to be learning something through that instance. You come out the other end, yes, being more healthy, and maybe, look, boom, you're producing fruit now. Pruning is important. We go through that. But if you're producing no fruit, if you are not doing anything, <clears throat> every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that <clears throat> bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Um, for, again, abide in me and I in you. Um, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. But I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For um, without me, you can do nothing. And that's the thing. Without Christ, we aren't going to bear fruit. Some people try. Some people try to do stuff and be like effective Christians, but you're not doing it according to the Lord's will. I mean, you see that in the Bible, you know. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not feed the sick, or feed the poor, do we not um, heal the sick? And Jesus says, away with you, I never knew you. You can do so many things for the Lord in his name, but if, if, you don't, if you're not doing it properly for the Lord and you yourself aren't in a right relationship with the Lord, your fruit you're producing isn't fruit at all. It's just nothing, and you're still a worthless branch that needs to be cast out. We need to make sure that we're properly abiding in the vine so that we're getting the proper nutrients of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit, to produce the fruit that he wants us to produce in our life. Um, eight, yeah, eight. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and, you, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We need to bear much fruit. That is what God wants from us. Bear much fruit. Not just a little fruit, but much. And again, for the Christian life, just simply just adhering to the word of God, 
praying and seeking His will above our own. That's it. It's really easy to go out into the day and start doing the tasks that are set before us that we need to do and doing it in a worldly right way. Maybe you're not thinking like, Lord, what can I be doing for you today in my day? What do you want me to do? And it's not necessarily going to always be evident, but if you're listening, he'll speak to you. I mean, the days that I live properly and do that, again, it's not necessarily going to be like, do this, but you'll have an opportunity sometimes in your life that presents itself that clearly you're like, I think this is from the Lord. I got to do this. Um, a lot of times for me, it's, you know, um, just saying something to someone. You know, I just have a prompting. I'm like, you should say something. You say whatever to this person. Or go talk to that person or whatever. Text this person. Just something maybe simple. But it, those simple things that we can ob- obey the Lord in can produce much fruit. Who knows if you ever have a prompting to go talk to some person, what fruit could come from that interaction? We don't know. We need to be obedient in the... And do what the Lord's telling us to do. Um, nine, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one um, than this, that than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for, I, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I, um, that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Um, once again, keeping his commandments, abiding in his love as he abides in the Father's love. But the joy there he brings up. That my joy remain in you, that your joy may be full. And that is such a key to the Christian life is joy. And it's something that I myself struggle with too. You know, sometimes it's hard to have joy in this world in certain times. It's, you know, it brings us down. But we need to remember that our joy doesn't come from, from the world. It comes from the Lord. And if we're properly abiding in the Lord as we should, his joy will be there. And joy, evident joy in our life is a really cool testimony to people. Just having joy in your life. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere, maybe not close to here. So I guess it could happen locally, but it's happened more with me when I've been away. And you just like bump into some random stranger and you just start talking. And just from the way you're interacting, you almost just can tell, like, I feel like this person's a Christian. Just because the way they're interacting is kind. There's some compassion. There's joy in their life. And you just don't get that with a lot of average People, you can just tell, and you know, sometimes you're like, "Hey, are you? Are you do you go to church somewhere?" And they're like, "Yeah, I do." Blah, blah, blah. And it's just you can tell. Your spirit can tell, and the world can tell too. Non Christians can tell sometimes. Like, and it might not happen for a while, but if you work somewhere or interact with the same people enough, and you have that joy, it might come up. Why are you always so happy? What what makes like why this world is awful? Why are you whatever? And they'll ask maybe a question. 
relating to your state of being positive. Sometimes it annoys people. <laughs> Maybe, you know, why are you so happy? But it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to share with um, why we have that joy, because it's not me. I'm not happy, but the Lord makes me joyful. Um, yeah. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And um, there is honor in that in the human way. You know, a lot of people attribute that to, you know, war. A lot of, uh, you know, Memorial Day, that, that's a common uh, verse that is used. Which there's truth to that. But this is also a spiritual thing, laying down our life for our people we know. And, and that is like in, a, in service as well. Um, go, go the extra mile and put your life second to someone else's life for their sake. Christ, look at him, died for us. He laid down his life for his friends. And if we believe in him, um, you are my friends. It says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So he died for those who would do whatever he commands them because he's his friend. Anyways, he goes into saying that they're no longer servants because servants don't know what the master's up to. But once that's revealed, then you're now friend. You're not a servant. And we are servants because we should serve the Lord, but we have moved into that. We are. We're friends with Christ. We are. We have a relationship with Christ that's more than just servant and master. It is that, but it is it goes more intimate to servant, master, friend, son, father. We, we serve the Lord, and it's because, again, we know. We know what happens to the Father. We know the whole game plan. We have the Bible. If that was concealed from us entirely, then it would be, like you said, servant, master. But you have been, I've revealed to you all that I know from the Father. And then he, you go know, right there, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. That is important. Your fruit should remain. If we bear fruit and the fruit that we've borne forth does not remain, well, that might be the fruit you've attained or that you've seemingly attained was done, maybe not according to the Lord. And that's what I was saying. Some people try to seek things and do things and perform for the Lord. And it might be sort of successful or appear successful. <clears throat> I know I've done that. I've had friends when I used to go to different church when I was younger. I, you know, would invite people. But I, our church that I used to, you know, go to sometimes was a little gimmicky to get people in. Um, and that doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You get people there, but you don't let people stay that way. Because as soon as those things are gone, well, they don't care what you're saying. And that happened to some of my good friends. You know, they were introduced to church because we brought them. But, again, the youth group we were involved with, it was just very that way. It was, you know, entertainment. And we had a youth pastor that was doing all that left. Someone else came in that was more, let's read the word. And those people were like, yeah, this is cool. I'm going to go. I don't care. So <clears throat> we need to uh, have fruit that remains. And that comes through proper adherence to the word of God, not keeping them engaged through other means of entertainment or whatever. Um, so again, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. <clears throat> now, we're commanded. These things I command you. Well, now we know. Commandments of God, this is one of them. We've been commanded this, that we love one another. And I, I think we know that we need to love one another. Um, and that comes in a lot of ways, yeah. 
we are all in a really tough world. Every day is a struggle. And for those people sitting in this room that knows one another, um, you know, use each other, lean on each other, love one another in encouragement, also in exhortation, in, in challenging one another, in uh, um, accountability. Uh, all these things are ways that we love one another. Again, we can't fall into the world's definition of love, which is love one another by just being like cool with what we're doing. If, if I see someone that I know in this church that I know enough to see something and I don't say something, that isn't me loving them. Proper love is be like, hey, I've noticed this. Want to talk about it? Let's pray together, whatever. That is how we demonstrate um, loving one another, praying for one another. Pray for people that are sitting here that aren't here that we can think of that aren't here. We need to we need to pray for people. I uh, yeah. I ask that you would um, that we would do that together, Lord. I uh, love you, and I ask that you would fill us with your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would love one another, we would obey your commandments, Lord, and that we would pursue righteousness, and that we would do the work and the the, the work that you've placed before us. We would abide in you, Lord. Love you, and we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.